It's, uh, we have a marvelous, wonderful passage to look at this morning. I think it follows up really well on uh, where Brett left off last week at the end of John 17, the church's future, beholding the glory of Christ. I want to ask you to turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're primarily looking at verses 16 to 18, but I do want us to pick up a little earlier than that in the chapter. I'd actually like to start reading at verse 7. If you have your place, and if you're able to do so, I would like to ask you to stand as we read God's Word together. Paul writes these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So... We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you join me as we go to the Lord together in prayer? Father, we ask you at this time to make your word fruitful in our lives. Would you help me to speak Clearly, as I ought to speak, would you guard me that I would not speak for the approval or the applause of men, but for the good of all who hear. Accomplish your good will in us this morning through your spirit working through his word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I imagine you've probably seen the trucks on the highway 
uh, that are carrying supplies to some popular restaurant, maybe a fast food place like McDonald's or Jack in the Box, what do they have on the side of their trailer? Big, scrumptious, delicious-looking picture of the food they want you to buy, right? Uh, Why do they do that? I mean, it's obviously a strategy by the owners of that business, right? Uh, They want to make you hungry for their product, right? They want to make you think that that muffin you had for breakfast really wasn't enough, and uh, you need that breakfast burrito to get you going for the day, right? Uh, They want you to forget the PBJ that you brought along with you in your lunch sack and go for the quarter pounder with cheese and the crispy golden fries instead. I want to try to do something like that this morning. I want to hold some pictures before you that make you hungry. Not for quarter pounders and breakfast burritos, but for heaven. Actually, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. I want you to be hungry for the eternal weight of glory that captivated and sustained the Apostle Paul in his ministry as he expresses here in this passage. And as we look at this same picture that Paul held before his eyes, I want us to notice, I want us to be convinced that there is nothing that strengthens and equips us for useful Christian service here on earth like this attitude of heavenly-mindedness that we see in the Apostle Paul. So this food that I'm trying to hold out before you Unlike the the pictures you see on the fast food trucks, this food is actually good for you, okay? It doesn't clog your arteries. I happen to know a little bit about that. Uh, Sometimes we hear misguided warnings that say, now be careful, don't go to an extreme. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. But what we see in Scripture is that setting our sights and affections on heaven actually makes us fit for service and helpful to others. If you have a version or you see a version of heavenly mindedness that does not move you to and equip you to serve others, then it shows it's not real heavenly mindedness. It's, it's some kind of fake. But I think this passage shows us nothing is more helpful and more beneficial for you right now than learning the practice of genuine heavenly mindedness. Well, I want us to begin by setting up a little bit of context here in chapter 4. In this chapter, Paul is writing about his own ministry, which of course centers upon the proclamation of the gospel. The message of Christ crucified, risen again. We might say uh, this passage here, 2 Corinthians 4, describes Paul's philosophy of ministry. How does he go about this task of proclaiming the message of the new covenant which Christ has entrusted to him? Well, in verses 1 through 2, he talks about the integrity of his proclamation. 
He says he does not resort to disgraceful, underhanded ways. He refuses to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Actually, his methodology is as simple as this. This is the way he says it. It's the open statement of the truth. That's what it takes to carry out his ministry. Verses 3 through 4 speak about the rejection of that proclamation. He refers both to the cause and the consequence of that rejection. The rejection. There are many who are perishing because the God of this age has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In verses 5 through 6, he highlights what is the actual content, the real heart and core of his proclamation. It is Christ Jesus as Lord. And how he fits in, he and his co-workers are merely servants for Jesus' sake. In verses 7 through 12, Paul discloses the real power behind his proclamation. He says the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And what is manifest by the weakness of his condition and his mortal body is the life of Jesus. That's what makes this message so powerful. Then we move into verses 13 through 18, which really show us the motivation of Paul's proclamation. There's a goal Paul has in mind to which he is pressing through great trials, great difficulty, because he knows what the final outcome will be. Resurrection and life in Christ's presence. That's verse 14. The benefit of others, like the Corinthians, in verse 15. And according to the end of verse 15, all this results in thanksgiving and glory to God. And as he moves into verses 16 through 18 to draw some conclusions from what he's been saying, he makes this statement. So... We do not lose heart. It's the same thing he said back in verse 1. It's the idea of growing weary or faint or discouraged within so we don't want to finish, feel we don't have the strength to finish a particular task. And, of course, that reaches us right where we live, doesn't it? Because I know some of you are facing that very thing. You're facing weariness and discouragement, and there are times when you think maybe you should give up on what you on what you're doing. Some of you might be thinking of quitting school or dropping a particular ministry. And some of you may even be wrestling with doubts that make you wonder whether it's worth it to even follow Christ. So when we read this phrase where Paul says, we do not lose heart, it makes sense. We would, we would take notice, right? We, would look, we want to look carefully at it to see, okay, why, do, why does he say this? What's the reason he doesn't lose heart? Is it something I can learn from? Something that will make a difference in my life to help me persevere through the trials and struggles that I face? And of course the answer is yes. This is here to strengthen you and equip you in your faith. And it just takes a little bit of careful reading to see what Paul is saying. I want to summarize it like this. What gives Paul and his co-workers the ability to persevere in the Christian life, and especially in Christian ministry, even through times of intense suffering and affliction, is the perspective that comes from looking at the trials of this life in the context 
of eternity and its glory. It's a little bit long. I think I want to say it again. What gives Paul and his co-workers the ability to persevere in the Christian life and especially in Christian ministry, even through times of intense suffering and affliction, is the perspective that comes from looking at the trials of life, this life, in the context of eternity and its glory. So let's take a little bit of time, the next maybe 30 minutes or so, to look at this as closely as possible, and not so we can say, yeah, we understand the concept and we file it away in our memories, but to taste it and stir up a hunger for more so that we will continually seek this as the pattern for our lives. So first of all, let's look at God's provision for weary workers. That's our first heading, provision for weary workers. Notice, first of all, what, he does not, what Paul does not say here. He does not say, though our outer self is wasting away, we have gritted our teeth and determined that we are going to get through this. Paul is not relying on the stoic determination of his own iron will here. He is finding a source of inner renewal that ultimately comes from outside himself. And I know if you think about that, uh, you'll see this is so much better than just holding on and making it through, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot more joyful. It gives you the kind of joy and satisfaction that was expressed in a lot of these songs that we sang this morning. Ultimately, it brings more glory to God, doesn't it? People are not supposed to be impressed by the level of our determination, which at some point is going to run, run out anyway. We want people to be struck and attracted by the hope that gives us a reason for our endurance. That's the reality that Paul is describing here. Not stoic determination, but inner renewal. And notice what else he does not say. He does not say, I received such a boost from a spectacular experience that I had long ago that it has continued to strengthen and encourage me ever since that time. We might expect, if anyone would say it, it would be Paul. Think about the visions that he had and Jesus appearing to him on, on, the, on the road to Damascus. But what he actually says is this source of inner renewal is something that he needs and something he receives, How, what does he say, day by day. So, not a one-time experience, but daily renewal. And in this way, our inner self is somewhat like our physical bodies. Nourishment and nutrition is something we need on a regular daily basis. Not a shot we get once a week. So as an example, I think many of us were greatly uplifted and encouraged uh, by Brett's sermon last week, looking at the church's future, seeing Jesus' glory forever. Let me just ask you, how long did the emotional uplift of last week's worship service stay with you? I mean, two or three days if you had a good week, maybe? I'm speaking for myself here. And it's the same thing today. I mean, I do hope you feel uplifted by the message I'm bringing and the songs that we sing. But that emotion is not enough, is it? 
it's necessary to take the content of what we're talking about, what we're looking at here, and bring it with you into Lockheed tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning. Take it with you to the fridge and the kitchen sink and the washing machine. I mean, you've got that load of dirty laundry. Take hope, the hope of glory with you as well. Think on it on a regular basis. Feed your mind with it. Feed your heart. We struggle and we're tempted and we wonder where we're going to find the strength we need to keep on following Christ in service to others. And God is offering you the strength you need right here. But it's not something that happens automatically. It's why we need time alone with God on a regular basis. It's why we need to seek fellowship with other Christians throughout the week. And these are not activities that we mark off on a checklist so we can say, oh, we're doing a good job, okay? They they are a means to an end. They have a purpose. They They help us set our minds on what is truly beneficial and what is most important. They help us gain the perspective that Paul is writing about in these verses. And that's what we want to look at now. It's the second heading on our outline, the perspective that brings renewal. The perspective that brings renewal. Now this really gets to the heart of what Paul is saying in this passage. The reason, he says, that our inner self is being renewed day by day in verse 16 is because of what he declares in verse 17. For, because... This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now that is some really remarkable language that he uses, if we just think about it. I mean, do you know what kind of afflictions he was going through that he describes in this very letter? Uh, we actually read a partial description of some of those earlier in the chapter four, being afflicted and um, but not cast uh, not cast down and persecuted and, uh, and all these things. Uh, we actually get more details in uh, chapter one and in chapter eleven. Uh, so in chapter one, verse eight, he says, uh, "We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia." For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So they apparently were in such a a dire situation, they actually thought they were going to die. They thought they were not going to make it out of their circumstances alive. And then in chapter 11, Paul is kind of forced uh, by his by his enemies or opponents. Uh, he's forced into comparing his ministry to the false claims of others. And so he somewhat reluctantly speaks of the sufferings he received as a servant of Christ. Let me read, let me read some of that. He says in verse 23, it was with far greater labors, describing his own ministry, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, 
danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. (laughs) I mean, how in the world does Paul call that a light, momentary affliction? Sounds like some pretty serious stuff. But the answer is that the perspective comes from looking at what is unseen. It's what he calls the eternal weight of glory. It's like he's using one of those old-fashioned balance scales, right? On one side is this boulder. And you look at it and you wonder how one man can even load it onto the scale, much less carry it around with him. When you look at it by itself, it's heavy and painful, and you would say it's really too much for one man to bear. But that perspective completely changes when we see what's on the other side of the scale. It's not a boulder of any comparable size. It's like Mount Everest coming down on that scale. Kaboom! Right? And all of a sudden, you don't think that boulder is big and heavy. It's light and temporary because it just got launched into space. So here's our first observation about this heavenly-minded perspective. Looking at eternity helps us see our afflictions for what they really are. Looking at eternity helps us see our afflictions for what they really are. It's not that Paul is unrealistic about the nature of of suffering. We saw that. We saw how honest he was about the troubles he was going through. But the perspective of eternity gives us true clarity about our suffering. For the believer in Christ, your trials cannot crush you. They cannot defeat you. After this little blip of time that represents your present life is over, all those afflictions are done and gone. The afflictions themselves will soon disappear, but there's something else for us to see. There are benefits to those afflictions that will last into all eternity. And that's the second observation about this perspective Paul has I want us to make. Suffering affliction helps us see eternity for what it really is. Eternity helps us see our afflictions for what they really are, but suffering afflictions helps us see eternity for what it really is. So notice that Paul does not simply say that this light momentary affliction will one day be exchanged for an eternal weight of glory. What does he say? He actually says... It is preparing the weight of glory for us. What does that mean? Well, that word prepare is a word that both Paul and James use as part of a process that produces a certain result. So in Romans 5, 3 and in James 1, 3, it says that suffering and testing produce endurance. But I think maybe we get even uh, an even clearer picture of what Paul has in mind when we look back at Chapter 1, verse 9. So we started to read there, but we didn't, we didn't finish the verse. He actually tells us the reason for the afflictions 
that made them despair of life and feel that they had received a sentence of death. Why did this happen? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So our afflictions strip us of our misplaced faith in ourselves and they cause us to place our faith where it really belongs. Self-reliance works to our eternal detriment. Afflictions that produce faith bring about our eternal good. So do you see what a huge implication this has for the way you're supposed to look at suffering? Afflictions are not just bad experiences that you have to get through somehow. From the perspective of eternity, we get to do more than just endure them. We get to embrace them. They are the tools that men and Satan intend for our destruction, but God's overriding purpose is to use them for our good. Primarily, so we will look away from the pleasures and promises of this life and look instead to the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us. So what exactly does Paul have in mind when he speaks about this eternal weight of glory? I would say so far we've been looking more at the process of how this perspective uh, shapes our lives and helps us to endure But if we're going to take on this perspective that Paul has that's so beneficial, okay, how do we do that? What thoughts are we supposed to be thinking when we look to our eternal future? I mean, is it all about streets of gold and gates of pearl, fabulous mansions, reunion with loved ones? The truth is, Paul does not give us a precise definition here in this passage, and for that matter, we really don't have a full, complete description anywhere in the Bible I think surely part of the reason for that is we are just truly not capable of comprehending it all. But if we're looking for it, there are images, there are glimpses God gives us in his word of what is to come. And so that's our third heading in our outline. What I want us to look at now is portraits of the coming glory. Portraits of the coming glory. We get some hints at what Paul is thinking in the context of this passage, and we can look at other passages as well, which we will in a a moment. One thing Paul clearly has in mind is the hope of the resurrection. If we follow his line of thought into chapter 5, he talks about the destruction of the tent that is our earthly home. That's his way of referring to our present physical bodies. In this tent, he says... We groan. We long to put on our heavenly dwelling. And that's talking about the bodies we receive at the resurrection. So we need to think clearly about this. It's not just our spirits that will live in heaven forever, as wonderful as that would be. He tells us in Philippians 3, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body.
Those bodies will be suited for life in a new world. The new heavens and new earth where God's glory shines in all its fullness. You see, we could never take in that glory with the limitations of our present mortal bodies. That's why Moses couldn't see God's face when he asked to see God's glory. Remember Exodus 34, 33 and 34? God said, no man can see me and live. But in our resurrected bodies, that's what we get to do. We get to see God face to face, in part because he will have given us immortal bodies that will never again taste death. And the picture Paul uses to talk about this here in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, also back in 1 Corinthians 15, is that we are clothed with immortality. That's a great picture. Death is swallowed up in victory. We are clothed with indestructible life to enjoy God's immediate visible presence forever. There's a second portrait I want us to see, and that's this. Rewards for faithful service become a crown of rejoicing. Rewards for faithful service become a crown of rejoicing. The point here is not a physical metallic crown, though I don't know, that, that may be something we literally experience, but the, po- the real point is, is what the crown represents. In the New Testament, crowns often represent rewards given to faithful servants by their king. And, and, and we see something like this, we see this idea further down in chapter 5. Paul reminds us, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each, mo- each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Jesus promises us that those who serve him will enter into eternal joy, into the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. He even tells us something as small as giving a cup of cold water in his name will not go without its reward. I don't know exactly what what those rewards look like, okay? But it seems one thing very important in Paul's mind is the joy when he thinks about his eternal reward, it's the, he thinks of the joy of seeing others joining in God's praise for all eternity and knowing that God partly used his labors and his suffering to get them there. I mean, of course, we don't mean that Paul is paying for anyone's sins to reconcile them to God. But we read... Multiple places, he joyfully endured much suffering, much hardship to bring the message of reconciliation to the Gentiles, to the nations. We saw this earlier, actually in chapter 4, verse 15. It is all for your sake, he says. That is, the work of proclaiming the gospel is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. And I think that's the same sort of thing Paul writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. Verses 19 and 20, he he asks them, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Think about that. Think about the joy of worshiping before God's throne one day and having brothers and sisters join you that God used you to help them come to faith and come to know the Savior. That should be a strong motivation. 
It's part of the weight of glory that Paul anticipates at the coming of Christ. But there's, there's two more ideas I want us to look at briefly. Paul was likely to have these ideas in mind when he thought about the coming glory. So the third one is this. Our exalted status as sons of God is fully revealed. Our exalted status as sons of God is fully revealed. This comes primarily from Romans 8, which uh, has a lot of parallels to our passage here in 2 Corinthians. We, we read with the beginning of this passage earlier in the service. Uh, some of the parallels are how it speaks about our present suffering, how it's necessary for us to suffer with Christ in order to be glorified with Him, and how that suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed. Well, what is that glory that's waiting to be revealed? (coughs) Part of it is the revelation of the sons, and that's small s, plural, sons of God. That's talking about believers in Christ. And we would have to say that's possibly the highest, most exalted status we can think of that could be given to any created being. We take on the image of the one, Jesus Christ, who has been the Son of God from all eternity. He makes us his brothers. Well, that's not a status that is immediately apparent in the present age, is it? A little little bit further down in Romans 8, it says, in this present age, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In this age, we're treated with contempt and scorn and ridicule. We're viewed with suspicion and hostility. But that all gets reversed in the age to come. Our trust in Christ is vindicated, and our membership in God's family is put on display for all to see. That's our third portrait. Our exalted status as sons of God is fully revealed. Fourth one is this, the bride of Christ is presented to her heavenly bridegroom. The bride of Christ is presented to her heavenly bridegroom. So in Ephesians 5, which is that great passage of instruction to husbands and wives, and it's based on the analogy of Christ's relationship with the church, he describes what Christ's love for his bride looks like. He gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And verse 27 gives us the final goal. That he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And some translations have, he presents to himself a glorious church, or the church in all her glory, Because that's really the same word, splendor and glory. There are numerous places in Scripture where we are prompted to think of ourselves as the bride of Christ preparing for her wedding day. And I just want us to go to one of those passages in the Old Testament I think is so striking, so compelling. It's kind of like getting to see your wedding pictures before the wedding takes place. (laughs) That might really... That's supposed to really stoke your desire, right? The passage I'm thinking of is Psalm 45, okay? Psalm 45. Verse 
the heading over this psalm calls this a love psalm. I think it was probably composed for a royal wedding. But with a Christ-centered approach to the Old Testament and to all of Scripture, like we believe, uh, we should be equipped to know what wedding this is ultimately talking about. I guess every young girl who dreams about getting married dreams that her marriage will be with the most wonderful and the most handsome man in the world. It's what this psalm tells us about our husband. You, verse 2, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. It goes on to talk about his, the majesty and the victory of this conquering king. And then about halfway through the song, it begins to, it begins to sing about the one who is to be married to this king. Verse 10, Hear, O daughter, and consider... And incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Now, I said every girl dreams about marrying the most handsome man in the world. What else does she dream about? She wants to be the most beautiful bride in the world, probably. And that doesn't have to be a, you know, an ego-centered, self-seeking kind of thing. Every bride wants to be beautiful for her husband, doesn't she? That's what happens in this wedding. We could also look at passages in the book of Ezekiel. This groom has the power to take a slut and transform her into a radiant princess bride. Verse 13, here, Psalm, back to Psalm 45, describes her like this. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions, companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. I mean, this wedding album even gives us pictures of the bridesmaids, these virgin companions following her. Do you see how beautiful and joyful this picture is? Handsome groom, beautiful bride, lavish wedding. They go to live in a palace forever. Oh. It's supposed to make us long for that day. And it's supposed to do something else. It's supposed to make us dissatisfied with anything else that this world has to offer. You see, there's a note of instruction and warning in many of these passages as well. The call to this bride was to forget her people and her father's house because she has a new allegiance now, becoming part of a new family. And when Paul uses marriage language to describe the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
He says he feels a divine jealousy for them since he betrothed them to one husband to present them as a pure virgin in Christ. He's fearful in a way. He doesn't want them to be seduced. He doesn't want them to be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So, when we begin to worship the idols and buy into the lies of this world, when our thoughts and attitudes begin to mirror the society around us, when we make decisions based on the fear of what others think and a desire for their approval, when we structure our lives around achieving earthly success, basically the Bible views that as flirting with our old boyfriend. We're following the laws of the wrong kingdom. We're forgetting whose family we belong to. So these pictures that I've tried to hold before you this morning to whet your appetite for the glory of eternity, they're meant to be a strong comfort for those who are tired or discouraged in your service for Christ. But they are also a rebuke for any of you who are filling your lives with lesser treasures. For some of you, it might be the comfortable lifestyle made possible by your job, possibly by a second job or your spouse's job. You may have determined that the extra income you were going to make was going to go to biblical heavenly priorities, but instead you find it always, go, it always goes down the rat hole of your consumerist impulses. It might be the amount of time you spend pursuing leisure and, and entertainment. It might be the standard of success defined by the American dream that you hold out for your children. You're called to pursue heavenly treasure, but you're caught on a hamster wheel chasing worthless trinkets. How does that happen? Well, it's true. The pleasures of this world can be very enticing. And on the other side of that, the the difficulties that we try to avoid can be very fearful and burdensome. But that's when you're only looking at one side of the scale. Both the enticements and the struggles of this present evil age lose their weight when you look at the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison on the other side of the scale. Brothers and sisters, Philippians 3, verse 20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven. From heaven we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have been raised with Christ from spiritual death and your relationship to this world has been severed, you are told in Colossians 3 to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You don't need any greater treasure than the treasure laid up for you in heaven. The eternal weight of glory will satisfy you in every way forever.